state of death care in New York City. I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And this is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. We will be joined uh, again on the show, a return guest, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, will join us um, a little bit after 5.20, and he will talk with us about a variety of things today. Uh, the Brooklyn Borough President has been very active during this crisis and actually you know, one of seemingly, um, you know, a fairly small number, and this is probably probably the right way to approach it, but one of a fairly small number of elected officials who's been on the ground quite a bit. Uh, Eric Adams is a former NYPD officer of more than two decades. He was a state senator. Now he's a Brooklyn borough president, and he's sort of taken a, a hands-on approach. And we'll ask him about some of that. I have some questions about whether, you know, some of the stuff he's doing on the ground is actually the right approach, um, but he's also taken a very active role. And part of that also leads into the fact that he is planning to run for mayor next year, as we've discussed with him on uh, prior appearances on the show. So Eric Adams will join us to talk about the situation in Brooklyn. It's uh, got a number of hard, really hard hit neighborhoods. Um, and then obviously the other aspects of this crisis we'll touch on with him as well and his role in trying to mitigate some of the worst uh, impacts here. Right. And Adams has been one of the people and obviously others have been highlighting this as well. But talking about the term that I don't think we ever used before, at least I never used, of death care uh, in this crisis, the, the concerns about the ability of uh, morgues and funeral homes and the medical examiner's office to handle the sheer volume of bodies that have been generated by this disease, um, stories about uh, U-Haul trucks full of bodies, um, you know, Heart Island being used uh, as it long has been as a field for people who have not been claimed. And Adams has been highlighting that and press, pressing for some changes. And so we'll be discussing that uh, as well. You know, there, there's there's virtually no part of, you know, our society, our government, our economy, our healthcare system uh, that was ready for this. Right. And, and so given that in, you know, many indications, it looks like a once a century uh, pandemic and hopefully it will only be that, you know, we've seen obviously some changes around, uh, you know, the old once a century storm. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it makes some sense that it's such a shock to the system that nothing from, um, you know, the unemployment system to nursing homes to, um, as you, you know, said, the borough president's been calling it death care, you know, funeral homes, burials, uh, none of these systems have been ready for this shock to the system. And of course, there's questions around whether New York State, New York City could have been getting a little bit more up to speed and prepared in the months of January and February and even into March when the crisis started really hitting here in New York. Um, but, you know, the scale of this thing and its many tentacles and fallout is just so enormous that almost everything's been overwhelmed. Well, that's true. And I think one of the questions we're going to ask going forward, and this will be coming up in the fall and next year, and when people are doing after action reports and investigations of the response and planning for the future is, you know, just what kind of flexibility do we need to have in place? Because I, I don't know if the, you know, this it's been 100 years since the, the 1918 uh, flu pandemic. And so, you know, the math kind of works out to suggest that we're going to have a while before we can encounter something like this again. But but we don't know that to be the case. There's, you know, suspicion that um, climate change and increasingly connected world, uh, people continuing to encroach upon wildlife habitat, 
that that is going to increase the potential for pandemic flu. You know, hopefully that's not the case, but it might may well be. So I think one of the things that people will talk about is how do you have a normal system, a system that's calibrated for normal everyday life in New York, which thankfully does not involve huge, huge numbers of deaths, but that has built into it some flexibility to flex uh, when these when these big events do occur. And I think that's also going to be applied to the school system and to healthcare and to employment as much as it can be. Those are precisely the questions people are going to ask uh, once we move, fully move out of crisis mode and into kind of a retrospective look at what happened and what was right and what was wrong. Indeed. And, you know, I want to hear um, some of the some of the pieces that, uh, you know, you're most thinking about right now, I'll say a couple things that are, you know, really on my mind. One is, um, you know, there's just this shutdown of the, of the subway system now from 1am to 5am every night. Uh, first time that's happened basically since the city subway system really got going, that there's this sort of consistent, um, shutdown at any time in service. And that's concerning a lot of people. It's definitely concerning me that, you know, there's this idea that, People are worried that, you know, the city won't return to 24-7 service. I think it will. The mayor basically said today, you know, that was sort of a prerequisite for him was that guarantee from the MTA and the governor when he agreed to the plan that they put in place. Um, you know, but but beyond whether it returns to 24-7 service, which I think it will and it better, um, is, you know, just um, the idea of what mass transit is going to look like when we try to recover from this thing and we try to avert um, the idea of a second big wave, what the mayor has been calling a boomerang effect, something we've seen in some other countries. Um, So that's really on my mind is sort of this, you know, where mass transit and other pieces of, of recovering and getting back to a sense of normalcy fits into the picture. Um, and so I'll, I'll just mention that one and, you know, want to hear, you know, what are some. Yeah, well, that's that's a fascinating one, Ben. And I think because, as you know, people, some folks have suggested in recent years that the city should, as a matter of course, shut down the subway or drastically reduce it at night as a financial saving mechanism and also as a way to do uh, track work uh, in a more compressed fashion. Um, you know, the stuff that I think Regional Plan Association, which is a major planning organization in the city dating back uh, many, many decades, included in their most recent uh, fourth regional plan, uh, you know, that they have they have proposed that for some time. And, you know, I think that one, one of the interesting things about the crisis, Ben, is that uh, I think the silver lining in how jarring all this has been is that it has proved that despite the digital world we live in, the advent of technology, that there are aspects of city life that it really can't effectively replace uh, and that we do need to make sure that we maintain you know, basic human systems and the ability to interact. We can't all merely retreat to our smartphones and our laptops. Um, so it has it has proved that. Uh, I think in terms of schooling that, you know, online learning is better than nothing, but certainly not replacing what we normally have in classrooms, uh, that working from home is feasible for many workers. But I'm hearing more and more from people that it's, you know, it is not quite the same. It's it's tough to maintain morale uh, and it's tough to maintain focus. And so I think we're going to have some more general cultural conclusions coming out of it. But one of the things that will be interesting is. You know, for the subways, obviously, Mayor de Blasio, as has been pointed out in the past, it does not control the subways. He's he's noted that. Um, so the state and the NTA you know, could move uh, without him if they so chose. 
And I think the fiscal uh, situation, uh, coupling with the public health questions, are going to feed into that decision about when and how uh, the subways uh, come back. Uh, I think that there will be a strong push, as you mentioned, to by the city to to keep them up and running. Um, but you know, there are a lot of policy issues that have been raised in recent weeks that clearly tap into sentiments that were expressed before, whether it's about criminal justice, um, the undocumented, other aspects of life. Obviously, all these issues have been brought to the fore by this crisis. And folks have, you know, I think quite appropriately used the crisis to highlight those issues. Um, so some things will change as a result of that and some things won't. Um, the MTA is obviously a, a big one. And I think it all ties together as well, whether or not students are going back to school in the fall, which hopefully will occur and I think probably will occur, whether people are going back to work. Um, there's obviously a chicken and egg relationship with the mass transit system. Indeed. And, you know. One of the other interesting things you just hit on is this idea of going back to work and how, you know, let's say a a million plus unemployed, uh, newly unemployed New York City residents and and workers um, find work. And what the you know, is it is it that the economy, you know, sort of over a fairly short period of time just gets an on switch kind of hit again and we we get back to something really bustling because the virus has mostly worked its way through and we have mass testing ability and, you know, it's not quite that long a period of time before things are really humming again. Or what seems like a more likely situation is that there's a, a slower recovery and the recovery enters a very new type of economy in the city. Um, and, and what the shape of that looks like is obviously a huge outstanding question and how, city, state, even federal governments try to shape that, impact it, uh, help it along uh, what there is investment in versus divestment from, uh, you know, these are important questions. The other thing I want to mention, too, um, you know, that's sort of fascinating me and also frustrating me a little bit is, you know, there's this question around the idea that, you know, we weren't really prepared for something of this magnitude and we weren't even close to prepared for it, right? Even if you can sort of say, there was no way to be prepared for something this of this magnitude. We weren't even close. And, you know, there's there's discussions now and the mayor's promising to develop uh, sort of the city's own stockpile of medical gowns and equipment and maybe more ventilators and things like that. And while that's probably smart, you know, it also concerns me. And I think I've said this before, you know, this idea that once you have a big crisis, you sort of then prepare to be ready for that exact same crisis were it to come around again. And it's just very, you know, it's, that's just not smart planning to, to think about it that way. And I, I hope that in the process of thinking about what's gone on here, that we really, you know, that there's a real good broad discussion about a variety of potential emergencies and crises down the road that we may not be that well prepared for, whether it's things related to the water supply or the food supply or whatever it might be. Um, you know, that there's a better, thoughtful, forward-looking planning process than just how do we be ready for another uh, COVID-19. Well, right. There's always a tendency, right, Ben, to, to, to plan to fight the last war as opposed to the one that's ahead. That's that's kind of in human nature and, and kind of endemic to government. And so, yeah, I think the, the discussion will be about flexibility for a range of potential uh, emergencies and disasters. And, and, you know, a lot of it is not so much about, you know, I think I think a physical stockpile makes sense to some degree. 
But you're right that it's about mechanisms and um, control and surveillance, the ability to react. One of the questions I have early on, obviously, the critique of Mayor de Blasio was that he waited too long to close the schools, and that, that very well might be the case. But as we learn more and more about when this disease hit the city, when the first cases really were here, you know, I think the way that we thought about those first weeks of March as the weeks in which this disease was unfolding uh, may be somewhat inaccurate. And it's possible this was already well underway and rolling through our neighborhoods and communities before we were even talking, uh, you know, actively about major aspects of a shutdown. And so I think part of this, too, is going to be looking at what exactly was the timeline, when when could decisions have been made that would have allowed us to create that stockpile or begin seizing those ventilators or creating the ass- the excess capacity in the mortuary system. All those things, I think, will be questions we ask. And and we now have a guest on the line who is uh, an official and uh, and also in, in many ways a candidate too. Uh, Eric Adams spent decades in the New York Police Department, rose to the rank of captain, was a founder of 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement Who Care, then became a state senator and for many years now has been Borough President of Brooklyn. Mr. Borough President, welcome to Max and Murphy. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, sir, talk about, just as a way to start the conversation, the situation in Brooklyn with COVID-19 now compared to a week ago or two weeks ago. What do you see getting better? What's still a problem? What's getting worse? Well, I believe that the the term flattening of, of the curve, the term that we, we are becoming used to, is happening here in New York State. Uh, but as you see across the country, uh, you're seeing spikes in certain areas. And that should be concerning because New York is still uh, one of the most important tourist uh, destinations. And if you have people who are moving at a different pace of, I feel, reckless, recklessly opening their cities and state it could increase and have an impact here in New York City. But on the ground of what we're doing here, uh, I continue to say in operation of this magnitude, there are two phases. One is considered a search and then a rescue uh, and recovery. A search stage, meaning bodies are still alive, you're still looking for them. Recovery, you're just going after the bodies for the dignity purpose so they could have a burial. We're still in the search stage. So there's still an opportunity to save lives, and we have to do things uh, differently if we're going to do that. One, every New Yorker, particularly every essential employee, should have some form of face covering or what we call PPEs, personal protection equipment. That must happen right away. It was a major error that we didn't supply that, and I think we need to fix that. Second, food. Food insecurity is real. But you cannot have nutritional meals going to the Upper West Side and in Central Brooklyn you're feeding people crackers and peanut butter and instant oatmeal, which spikes uh, diabetes. We must start changing what we feed people in the city and not feed the crisis. Pre-existing conditions equal bad food, bad lifestyle. That is what's causing those things like pre-existing conditions. And those are two areas that we have not picked up on at the speed we ought to, we need to focus on them to sort of slow down this virus even more. As you, uh, as you've been assessing uh, how things are going and the response to this crisis, 
right now, can can you identify um, already one or two of the biggest takeaways in terms of um, why New York City has been so extremely hard hit? Are there one or two things that you can put your finger on right now that you know um, are causes of the scale of this crisis here? Well, it's difficult to say for sure because the data has yet to come in. But based on the last 40-plus days, I have lived in Borough Hall. I have to see my mattress at home in 40-plus days. I spent a lot of time on the ground. And there are two things that jumps off at me right away. We made a big mistake in dividing the city between this term called essential and non-essential employees. Uh, This is one New York, and we should have had one goal of protecting all citizens. It didn't matter if they were in nursing homes or it didn't matter if they were in NYCHA or if they were in grocery store clerks. We didn't do that. We had a plan for people to shelter in place, for people to practice social distancing, and if you had to go out to cover your face. We did that for all of our non-essential employees. But our essential employees that couldn't shelter in place because of their job description and job title and couldn't social distance and didn't get those coverings, we just basically left them on their own. So they went home. Many of them were asymptomatic. They went home. They impacted their families. Their families went to the hospital. We didn't do testing like we should have. We, we under-tested in many of the communities of color and impoverished areas. We were almost tested for every person that had the symptoms. We were testing at a rate of denying nine and testing one. That was a big mistake because those people were not admitted to the hospital based on a Department of Health order. If you weren't admitted to the hospital, you were not going to be tested. They were sent back home, and they contaminated their families with the virus, with with the uh, visible signs that they had some form of flu-like symptoms, which many people thought was uh, COVID-19. And those were the big mistakes I believe we made. Um, we didn't have, we did not have an intervention and a prevention plan. Intervention, you have it already. We're going to do best we can to uh, make sure you're okay. But the prevention plan, we, we were supposed to be preventing people from getting it. We made a big mistake that I saw, I see often in crisis. You can't govern on what you think is going to happen and ignore what is happening. That happens in crises often. We're so afraid that we were going to have Uh, You know, hundreds of thousands of deaths in the city. We were going to run out of ventilators. Uh, We were preparing for the worst that we didn't realize in some parts of the city they were already experiencing the worst, and we just didn't respond to that. You're listening to Max and Murphy on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're on with Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Mr. Borough President, I want to go back to something you said in your initial answer about food. Access to food has been a concern since the very beginning of this crisis. Food pantries shutting down because of lack of volunteers or lack of supplies. Uh, Obviously, the school food system having to be replaced by a kind of ad hoc arrangement. But you were talking about some very obvious disparities in the types of food people in different parts of the city are getting. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, what troubled me, I received a communication from my colleague in the Upper West Side, of Manhattan, they sent me a photo. They said, Eric, look what they're feeding uh, my my residents up here, and look what they're feeding the men and women in central Brooklyn. There was a clear difference 
and the food that was being fed in the uh, Upper West Side of Manhattan. And people in the Upper West Side and all over the city should receive quality food, but we should not deny other parts of the city. Here in Brook, Brownsville, Coney Island, and other areas, they sent them uh, crackers, instant oatmeal, anyone that knows anything about diabetes, which is a pre-existing condition, uh, knows that instant oatmeal spikes your sugar. Uh, they were being sent a peanut butter with sugar inside it instead of a good quality substance if you're going to use peanut butter. And, and that, that was the problem, that we didn't treat uh, all communities the same. The virus didn't discriminate, but our policies, our rollout discriminated. We, we failed to manage our assets and ensure the distribution was in an equitable fashion in real time. That's the sentence that defined what happened to us. And you, and you, don't, hear, you don't hear anyone talking about the food part of this virus. If we don't get our systems of what we're feeding people under control, we're going to continue to have this crisis that we're experiencing over and over again. Do you, um, well, let me first say at Gotham today, we've been covering the food aspect quite a bit and even published uh, an op-ed by yourself on the, on that healthfulness aspect. But, um, do you, do you, have a sense um, in terms of those disparate, uh, the health, the healthfulness of those meals. Do you have a sense that both of of those sets were being controlled centrally by the city, or are there local uh, issues at play? Decisions, closed food pantries. You know, are there are there is it is it as simple as you know the sort of the sort of city halls food system is broken, or was there any local issue at play? And that's a great question uh, because it's a combination. Uh, the city hall food system uh, was clearly uh, not prepared and didn't make the necessary adjustment. I know the mayor uh, switched over uh, the process uh, in the hands of Commissioner Garcia uh, to sort of get it under control. They stated that they're still ironing out the kinks um, of that uh, delivery system. We had people on the ground like campaign against hunger and one month she distributed a million meals which was just amazing of high quality meals so it was a centralized system because remember what happened when they shut down the city or pause whatever terminology we want to use those senior centers where many uh, seniors were receiving their the meal of their day that primary meal was coming from the Cedar senior centers we closed them down Seniors went home. There was no real avenue of getting them food that was not ironed out and part of the closed-down process. Adult uh, adult daycares, those daycares, was, they were also closed down, and we didn't make the quick adjustment of allowing them to use uh, mm -hmm. a telemedicine, telecommunication to continue to provide the services. So it was a centralized breakdown, not only in just the local pantry, but it was a centralized breakdown and not getting food to those who are in need. Let me ask you, um, you've been um, making a lot of um, deliveries of, of some masks and personal protection equipment that you say you've said um, in some statements and, and interviews that you've been able to secure by making um, your own deals with uh, partners in China. Can you explain that a little bit more? I'm, I'm, uh, 
I've been a little curious about how, you know, the Brooklyn Borough President's Office is making deals to bring in equipment while, you know, in some ways the the city government and state government have had their own struggles with that. How, how do those deals I think, work? I, I think I think that's going to be one of the darkest moments of the review of this entire encounter. Why could Warren Buffett get a plane full of PPEs in the richest city in the richest country? Uh, the richest state, we couldn't. That's a question that I've asked over and over again, if, if you heard me speak about this. Throughout the years, uh, when I first became borough president, I reached out to the all the council generals in the city, and I held, held several meetings with them because I always felt Brooklyn uh, being the third largest city, if they were independent city, that we need to have international relationships. You can't solve modern problems believing you're going to be an isolationist. And I traveled back and forth to China six times in an established sister city agreement uh, with the Chinese government. And so when the virus came here to the country, one of the largest producers of PPE is China. So I got on the phone and said, we need your help. Until our government is able to bring these supplies on the front line, can you guys help us here in Brooklyn? And they, they started shipping in thousands of masks that we were able to bring to hospitals, bring to frontline employees, while the MTA had a stockpile full of masks that they refused to give to their employees. We were giving them masks. We were giving correction officers masks, school crossing guards masks, um, giving N95s to downstate, interfaith, Maimonides, all of these hospitals here. Because we thought we were just holding on the front until the city and states procurement would have come through, but the cavalry never came. You know, we, we're in, what, week six, and we just started talking about giving masks. I've always said we should be giving masks to every essential employee and every citizen. Connecticut was giving masks to Stanford. They was giving masks to every citizen. Newark was giving masks to every citizen. Why couldn't we have done that here in New York? And you're, you're using, what, funds from the Brooklyn Borough President's sort of, uh, you know, expense budget to, to make those deals or what? Nope. Straight donations. We have not spent a dime. Straight wow. donations. You know, the, the people of China and the Chinese community here, one story that has yet to be told that while the Chinese community was being attacked, while their businesses were closed down, while people were harassing them, when I started my NYCHA project, the Chinese community here in New York gave us 25,000 masks to do the NYCHA project uh, in spite of what they were going through. So we did not spend any money at all. It was all contributions from monks, from Chinese business owners, uh, people who said they, they love this country and they wanted to be here and be a part and help. And it was uh, all contributions. Speaking of mask distribution, I saw uh, police officers handing out masks in Van Cortland Park in the Bronx this weekend. Obviously, there were other instances over the weekend involving police um, that were less sanguine and uh, where the role of police in enforcing social distancing became uh, another topic or was renewed as a topic of conversation. What do you think is the appropriate way to enforce social distancing, Mr. Borough President? I mean, it is... If it is important in stopping a deadly disease, it is potentially a life and death issue. When there is a lack of compliance, what's the appropriate role for police and who else should be involved in trying to get people to comply? 
Well, let's think about this for a moment. If you were to do an analysis of the great disturbances in our country, I don't care if it's the Watts riots, the Los Angeles riots, if it's the riots that have taken place across this country, for the most part it involves police community interactions. You, we are talking, when you talk about police officers uh, enforcing social distancing, you are saying that a police department that has had some historical tensions in certain communities, you are now encouraging the largest interaction with these groups in the history of the police department. That is alarming. And what I said with the mayor, this is a good opportunity for us to build bridges with the communities that we have historical problems. Have them give out the mask. Have the police officers uh, say hello and give out masks to people and talk about social distancing. But the enforcement of social distancing is not a crime. And we should stop treating it like a crime. It's a reculturing. It's a rethinking how we have to exist in a COVID or any virus environment. So next week I'm having a meeting uh, with my law, my law enforcement people as well as my friends of parks associations throughout the borough, my civic, my block association, my pure violence, and my violence interrupters, my clergy. I am saying let's recruit people from their community to engage with people about the importance of social distancing. Because this is a reculture. This is not an enforcement. You know, we should not be looking to use this as a modified version of Stop and Frisk, as you saw what happened in Manhattan. They, they eventually arrested someone for possession of marijuana that started out as a, he was sitting on the stoop with his lady friend, and it, it evolved into all of a sudden they were wrestling on the ground, two people placed under arrest, and then a third person was punching his face. We cannot have that problem. We, this is going to be a hot summer. People are frustrated. Police officers are frustrated. We need people to be able to communicate not use citation. Uh, we want to try to get to a few other things with you in our remaining uh, five minutes here, Borough President. Uh, just a couple uh, maybe quicker questions. Just uh, as a follow-up to that, um, you know, if you were sort of running things today and you wouldn't have the NYPD as the front line of social distancing enforcement, do you think there needs to be a lot of city government personnel that are doing that work or um does it not have to be as much of a, of a, you know, it's, it's the guidances are out there and it's up to sort of social responsibility to take care of it. Or are there certain city employees that you would put in charge of it? Do you, do you know what you would do if you were in charge of the situation? Well, I, I think everyone could be engaged as city employee employees. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't subscribe to the theory of that certain city employees should stay home while the city employees uh, should be out on the front line, and particularly my supervisory uh, pool. You paid more, you do more. Uh, so I think that everyone could be uh, that it is not dealing with pre-existing conditions because you have some who are, but those who who could possibly do so, uh, they should be out also engaging in uh, the social distancing. It should not be a uniform personnel in those communities where they have uh, existing tensions. And, and just two sort of um, quick ones. One, are you in general agreement or disagreement with this developing plan to close down, you know, a bunch of city streets to cars, open them up to pedestrians and, and bikes? 
Uh, that's one. And the other one is, do you think there needs to be a plan in place to allow the city beaches to be open this summer? Uh, yes, I, I agree with opening the streets. And even if we didn't have COVID uh, virus, I think we need to open the streets. We need more foot traffic. I'm a bike. I'm a biker. I believe in it. It's a great concept, great idea, even after COVID-19 uh, uh, dissipates. Uh, and, yes, I think we need a plan to open beaches. Coney Island is uh, the Hampton for many people. It is the Bahamas. Uh, you can't tell people you don't have summer youth employment, you're closing the pools, you're going to sit in your apartment. That is just not something that's possible on hot summer nights. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, death care for just a quick minute. The changes uh, that were announced this week by the Office of the Chief Medical Officer uh, expanding hours and taking other steps to try to expand capacity, do those uh, resolve your concerns about the mortuary and morgue system in the city? Do you feel like there's more work to be done? Uh, More to be done, but amazing changes in the process. Systems are so important. When When you look at what was happening uh, during the bereavement process, the funeral parlors had the weight of the entire process on them. Our cemeteries uh, were having a slow, a slow, you know, slow flow of burying people. Our morgues were forcing, in the hospital, were forcing bodies out. So when the Office of Chief Medical Examiner determined they, they were going to open the 39th Street Pier after we had a conversation, and they were going to hold bodies as long as needed. No more two-week rush down from the 30-day rush. That was an amazing uh, release valve where the pressure is now off the system. We're in a good place. Now we just have to make sure we automate the process that people know where their bodies are located and families can receive the necessary uh, bereavement counseling. Burr President, do you feel the mayor's budget, just shifting gears for a second, the question of the fiscal impact, how bad it will be, and whether we are properly braced for that, do you feel the mayor's budget is realistic? Do you feel it makes enough provision for how bad the revenue situation is going to be? There are some people talking about the city going into financial receivership. I'm curious if you think that is a likely possibility. Well, there's a prediction that we're going to be dealing with almost a $9 billion-plus deficit uh, in you know, an upcoming budgetary season. Uh, when you look back at uh, after 9-11 attacks, uh, we were only dealing with a $4.8 billion budget deficit. We were able to go to the real estate community to bail us out. In 2008, uh, when we had a financial crisis, we went to the real estate community again. Uh, now... Uh, when you talk about uh, over $9 billion, it's an entirely different conversation. And, you know, the conversation that I heard him sort of allude to, the, po- the possibility of furloughs, uh, we need to look at those communities that were hardest hit and see how uh, we can prevent, uh, you know, actually hitting them even deeper cuts. And so it's alarming on how we're going to – we need to find new revenue. I don't think we could, could, could find this and just merely – uh, increase in taxes. Taxes have already increased in the five boroughs around even small property owners in comparison to the neighboring counties outside of New York City because of the property tax gap. So we need to find a revenue generator and be very creative in doing so, uh, looking at those communities and industries that have benefited um, from coronavirus. Not everyone lost money. And, you know, uh, even our banks, need, we bailed the banking industry out 
Uh, maybe it's time for the banking industry to come out with real programs to bail out everyday New, New Yorkers around everything from rent to uh, retail stores to uh, four-month uh, rent and mortgage freezes. So we have to really start getting help from Washington, D.C., but we also have to come up with the revenue that's needed to run this city. Uh, that's interesting and, and maybe uh, fodder for some more conversation another time, but we'll uh, get you out of here on one final question. Um, obviously, we are uh, just a couple months from one year from the big Democratic uh, primary to see who's going to be the next mayor. Uh, you're playing to be, you are a candidate in that race. Um, how do you think this crisis uh, impacts what that race is going to look like and what voters might be looking for? I, I, I really don't have a clue. I, I've really been focused on day-to-day, seeing the real pain on the ground. Uh, I think there's going to be time to talk about electoral politics. And uh, what I see every day is that people are really in survival mode. Uh, I've never seen anything like this in my life. Uh, you know, I lived through 9-11. I lived through the high crime years. But what I'm seeing on the face of New York is, is something that is even foreign to me. And I think that uh, 2021 is going to take care of itself. Hmm. Okay, well, uh, we will have you back on another time to discuss more of that then. Uh, Borough President Eric Adams, we appreciate the time uh, here on Max and Murphy. Thank you and be well. Thank you. You guys be well as well. Take care. Take care. Thank you. So, Jarrett, uh, another uh, good conversation with the borough president. I think we've had him on a few times now. Um, you know, he's always got some interesting things to say. Uh, any any particular takeaways from what we heard from borough president Adams? I was struck by his uh, response on the policing question. You know, Eric Adams, while he was a gadfly within the police department, he is not a radical left winger on law and order issues. And I thought he made a very cogent argument for why having police take the lead on enforcing social distancing is problematic for virtually everybody. Uh, really a, a, a much better presentation of that argument than I've heard from others. And so I thought that was that was really interesting. Someone who has you know, been in the position of, of both cop and critic um, saying that that is probably not going to work in this, uh, as he mentioned a couple of times, long, hot summer we have ahead of us. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, um, you know, one of the things I'm interested in from the borough president is sort of really trying to get a feel for how he sort of views, you know, views the city and and, and his constituents in Brooklyn. And then, you know, he's hoping the larger city. Um, and, you know, that was some of the questions that, you know, I just tried to quickly get in there about the open streets and the beaches, you know, just trying to get a sense of, of how he, you know, would govern um, and is even trying to govern to the extent he can as borough president, influence decisions, make some of his own impact, some of the things that are happening. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, to get a sense of sort of his evolving approach to uh, policing, to management, to, um, you know, to things like uh, planning for what will be, um, you know, looks like it's going to be a very challenging uh, summer here in New York City. Next week on this show, we're going to have Congresswoman Yvette Clark and her top challenger, Adam Bonkadeco, as I mentioned. And on Thursday, May 14th, Ben and I will be hosting a debate for the Democratic primary in the 15th congressional district in the Bronx. That's the seat that Jose Serrano is retiring from. So you can find details about that at citylimits.org and gothamgazette.com. Thank you to Ben Max and to Reggie Johnson, our engineer. Thank you for listening. Have a great week in the greatest city in the world.